Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Rider. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, proud fundraiser from my time working for Alzheimer's Research UK, now the charities lead at London Marathon Events where I get to work with thousands of brilliant and amazing charities, father of three football-obsessed children and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do More Good Good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Right, here we are, James, back again for the Do More Good podcast. It's episode 87. How are you doing? Very well, Kenneth. Very well. You are looking resplendent this evening in your in your new fancy office. Oh, thank you um, very much. I think we've we may have I may have seen this room before, but now it's all kitted out. You've got your little bookcase behind got my little you. Bookcase. I, had the to, best. I had to go onto Amazon and figure out which are the mo- the books that make you look the most intelligent, and I ordered all of the top ten. Um, <laughs> so I've got fundraising management. Oh, I've yeah. got a thank you economy. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Yeah. Adam Grant Originals. You read that? No, Good book. No. Getting Things Done. Alan de Botton, How Prowse Can Change Your Life. How to Win Friends and Influence People. And The Silent Guides. So oh there my you goodness, go. You really have bought the top 10. Hey, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You would never believe I have read them. But yeah. 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 I'm in my new office. It's lovely, actually, to have that bit of a split from the uh from the house over the last two years i've been in the bedroom the living room like everybody dining room table um but no now i've got some dedicated space so yeah i'm happy good good and how's your week been yeah week's been really good actually we did an announcement today at work so i don't know if you you've seen that on the airwaves so we announced today that we're working with enthuse as the fundraising platform the London Marathon event. So that was really exciting. Yeah, other than that, just kind of generally lots lots going on as there always is, but it's uh, it's an exciting time, an exciting announcement and seems to be received well. So yeah, how, how's your week been? Yes, yeah, it's been good. Um, is being a guest on the, the show a prerequisite for securing the marathon partnerships? Obviously, we had Chester on a few episodes we, ago, but yeah, good no, it's it's not. It, it, we did though, wasn't it? We spoke to Chester probably three or four months ago. Um, obviously, it was a great episode, and yeah, it just turned out that they were they were the platform of choice. We went through quite a strict process, you know, looked at all of the options out there, and um, yeah, it seems to have gone down well. It's probably not the selection that some people would assume that we would make in terms of you know there is other bigger I guess brands out there but um yeah I think it's going to be really good for the sector and really good for the partners that we work with so yeah I'm excited to see look forward to seeing it yeah yeah we're recruiting at the moment and I'm feeling the pressure of that so we're four roles out at the minute and I really want them to be brilliant people and I don't know I guess it reflects on you the people that you bring in right so um yeah we're, we're going through quite a stringent uh, recruitment process around them at the minute but nice at the end of the day Kenneth when you have appointed your new partners how do you like to relax what's your meal of choice <laughs> we'll come on to this and I guess probably going to wonder what it is but I'm sure you must he'll, he'll notice the reference so yeah we thought we always have a little chat before we, we jump into the episode and we wanted to talk about what was your favorite kebab um, that you that you like if you go for it you know you've maybe had a couple of drinks maybe you know there's nothing left in the fridge and you and you say to your darling wife 
should we get a kebab for the takeaway tonight? What what do you go for, Jimbo? Well, I'm I'm a, a more of a lamb on a wrap. That's Ooh. my choice. Um, but I can't go anymore. I can't go to the kebab shop. At the end, I can't go to Westmount Kebabs um, because we called up and made an order. And then I went in there and it, we were wearing masks. And I said, hi, I'm here to collect for James. And they said, oh, you're not supposed to be here for another hour and a half. And I said, oh, I'm here. Um, obviously, you know, you told me to come at this time. And they said, oh, right, well, well, we'll get to work. And then they took ages, ages and ages, like deliberately winding me up by taking ages to create this order. And then put six bags up on the top of the counter and they were order for Jane. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I then had to explain that wasn't my order and they just wasted all of that and um and then and I made my order and then like sheepishly left and can never go back. Oh. I could never go back in there. Oh. I basically sent them under. Oh no. Well look, yeah. we do look we love we love a kebab in the Foreman household. We've got a, a nice little shack down the few miles away, you know, travel a little bit out of where you live, find that place, gourmet kebab, it's called. Yeah. 4.8 rating on Google. I mean, you know, find me another kebab shop that can that can compete solid. with that. That's a you solid know, rating. Special chicken sheesh with grilled onion, mushrooms, halloumi, and pasturma sausage. I mean, nice. no, what's not God. to be... Uh, Always the like same? Always go with the same thing? Always the same. Always yeah. the same. You know, yeah. don't like the variation. But okay. um, yeah, why don't you send us your favourite kebabs in? That will be a question <laughs> to go out to. Uh, and our guest is now saying, okay, he's going to get involved in this discussion in a second. But let's let's come on to to do the introduction, James. He's patiently waiting there, as, the, as our guests always are when we ramble on at the start of our episodes. But we've got a really exciting guest this week. We're really looking forward to talking to him. Really interesting uh, background and career. So our guest this week is currently the Deputy General Secretary and Director of Communications and Research at Prospect, the trade union with over 152,000 members representing a diverse range of professions. After starting his working life as the President of the National Union of Students, our guest has had a varied career in a range of organisations across trade unions, the charity sector and government. And with a career that has focused on influencing change, building teams and communications, he's used his skills and experience to support good causes, drive change and push for social justice. And when he's not supporting the board of Stonewall as a trustee or a non-exec for one of the UK's largest community housing associations or helping the Digital Futures Research Centre look at the impact of technology, he may be found on the occasional episode of Newsnight or the Reasons to be Cheerful podcast. And according to his Wikipedia, as head of PR for the British Kebab Awards. Now, there can't be a busier person that we've come across. So we're very excited when a friend of the show, Simon Blake, made the introduction and we could get the opportunity to ask our guest how he manages to fit it all in. And so we're really pleased to welcome Andrew Pakes to the Do More Good podcast. How are you doing, Andrew? I, I, I'm really excited. now. I'm, I think I might be hungry. All this kebab talk, you've, you've got me going. What's your uh, what's your kebab of choice? And do you go do you know, when they offer the chili sauce? Do you say do you say yes, smother it all in? I think what would it be? I think see, I'm a, I'm a veggie, so I think halloumi. I've really got into halloumi yeah. even more so during lockdown. It's the the squeakiness you need in there, uh, and a lot of chili, a lot of chili. But you caught me out. I wondered if you were going to have spotted my strange part of my career where I helped do the PR for the British Kebab Board. So I should before we say, I should always shout out to Ibrahim Dogus, founder of the British Kebab Boards, who is a legend, and it still runs. And it made me think, actually, I just Googled it while I was waiting. In one of the stranger PR exercises I've done in my life, and I'm not sure it fits the 
it definitely does more good because people should eat and enjoy themselves. Not sure influencing change. In 2016, when we were doing, I think, the second Kebab Awards, we came up with this idea, as you do in your like PR team, to create the world's most expensive kebab. We did it. We believe we did it. No one challenged us. I'm not sure it was officially time recorded by... Norris McGuerta uh, or anyone from the Guinness Book of Records, but it was £925 for a kebab. Uh, um, Coincidentally, did, that well, was the, the amount for Jane's order at Westmount Kebab trying to call that, that I ruined for Westmount Kebabs. Oh, um, but you should you should get Ibrahim on. If you if you if you are if you are the Ant and Deck of kebabs between the pair of you, you should definitely get him on there. Get yourself, get yourself on the kind of it wouldn't be a gravy train. What would it be? A chili sauce train on yeah. the kebab world. Mint sauce, yeah. like a bit of mint or a bit, bit of garlic. Mm. Sounds we, like a guess for the future. We could do that at Gourmet Kebab 4.8 on Google. Exactly. Beat that. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, look, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, we've been exchanging emails the, the last couple of weeks. And, you know, what incredible CV and a, a brilliant career, you know, really with a common a common theme that runs throughout it of purpose and, and, and positive change for society. I guess the first question is, is how do you fit it all in? There's loads that you're going on. How how does Andrew manage all his time and give so much to all of those organisations? Yeah, well, I, look, I, you've pulled out some really nice things that I've done and have the privilege to do during my career. But, you know, I'm getting a bit older now, so I don't do, do them all at once. I suppose I'm a serial offender in that I believe in the power of social change and bringing people together. From very early days, I was brought up by brilliant parents, amazing grandparents who would never allow us to sit still if we didn't like something. We always had to do something about it. And I've had that buck ever since. I kind of think, you know, and genuinely believe that I have no right to complain about the world unless I'm willing to do something about it. So that sense of agency, which, you know, when I look where I sit now talking to you, uh, again, there's a huge amount of privilege in my ability to use what talents I've got to live in a country where you can get involved in social change without necessarily in all circumstances fear for your life Mm -hmm. then you know we should use that power we should create that agency we should do things together uh, to leave something better than what we we started off with and through that it's just taken me on this weird and wonderful tour and I met some brilliant people Uh, I've learned a few tricks along the way uh, and I still fired up about it you know until the job's done we've still got something to do. It's a, it's a great lesson to teach your kids as well, that you can't complain about something unless you're actively doing something about it yourself. That's brilliant. Yeah, I look back on it. I'm not sure it's a universal do something if you don't like something theory. I think I think it was generally aimed at if you don't like things in the world as opposed to if you don't like things in how the household is run. So I think there may be some kind of nostalgia trying to come up with some great theory of change in my life. But generally it was, you know, if you don't like things happening in the world, then you should do something about it. Yeah. And I mean, we're always interested in kind of what uh, what led our guests to have the career that they did. And you've kind of, you know, talked a little bit about your childhood there. But can you talk us through the, the young Andrew and, and how you ended up after your university life kind of jumping into the presidency of the NUS after university? I mean, you, you jumped straight in there, didn't you? Yeah, well, I could did a few stretches, I think, <laughs> on the way to, to get into that. What got me to be present? I suppose the things we just talked about. Yeah, I believe in the power of people to do good. I believe in our power to come together. Uh, and you know, university was a fantastic opportunity for me. Uh, and it kills me a bit now to look at how some of those opportunities are both being denied 
some people or, or the experience is changing because mm. lots of students are going through lockdown or not able to to create that kind of social interaction that hugely benefited me so I was mm. I was the first of my family to go on beyond 16 in education let alone into higher education and really felt that on my shoulders uh, sense that you know my parents and family worked really hard to give me the support and push me to do that into a land which was maybe strange to think of in this way it was a land I knew nothing of you know how what is your reference point in terms of entering this this kind of elite area you know nothing about uh, I was really lucky to have brilliant teachers, wonderful opportunities, uh, and to find a university home for me at Hull, which just seemed to fit my skin. I really loved, I know lots of people go to Hull have this kind of strange evangelical experience with it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's, uh, it was certainly far enough away from my experience to stretch me, but it's one of those cities where the university is kind of in the city. So it Mm. didn't feel, you didn't have that divide where you have in some places. And it felt like a city I recognised, even though I'm from the south, in that uh, it wasn't full of airs and graces. It clearly had had some tough times, mm-hmm. uh, but had a heart of gold underneath it, which allowed someone like me, who was you know, a nervous teenager going on to university, to find a space and place for myself. It also gave me the space to challenge myself intellectually mm. to find out what university was like I try and try and explain to people now that yeah in my first year we were still longhand writing essays uh, and the big cultural gap for me in university was when we had to use a typewriter to submit an essay and trying to find this old word processor to tap away on which might just date me you know it challenged me Hull has a great radical political tradition of social change from the anti-apartheid movement uh, involved in students for social change in all sorts of things the city has an amazing legacy in trade unions in social justice in social progress which all came together at the right point which was also the point when I was just coming out and finding myself, uh, you know, as a a gay man leaving home for the first time. Mm. And I think that really energized me, that ability to, you know, pre-internet, pre-mobile phones and WhatsApp, pre-Wordle, definitely pre-Wordle, the ability to find people, to kind of create your own family and your own tribes. Yeah. Kind of, I think, cast a really indelible link into me. That might give you some of the genesis which has taken me through into Stonewall and, and other things I'm passionate about. Mm. Uh, you know, but I first came out 16, 16 or so, just as people remember, I think, called Section 28, a piece of legislation which sought to criminalise me uh, and people like me just for existing. And that was weird, coming out and trying to find things in a world where you couldn't get hold of information or communication easily, mm. apart from this thing on television where you saw... The government of the day, the state, the thing we're supposed to trust uh, as the guardrails of our society, saying people like me shouldn't exist Mm. uh, and couldn't exist within their framework was a really horrible time. Create this really mixed up set of what you do. You're fine of exploring yourself, but you're finding yourself, your opportunities closed down. And then every now and then out the corner of your eye, you'd see something on the news, which... Uh, you suddenly realise, well, there's different voices here. There's something saying, or something in the paper that said, like, there's some people in Manchester who really don't like this single section 28 and, you know, never going underground and all these things around protests. You'd see 
brilliant, wonderful, powerful lesbians invading public spaces and, and you know, chaining themselves to newsreaders, people abseiling into parliament and this whole world that said somewhere in this little glimmer, there were people maybe like me mm. and they didn't have to accept the world as it was presented to them and they could create something else. Uh, and I suppose that's a really long-winded way of saying, you know, that early inspiration that re- my self-realization was that the things about me tend to place me on the outside of our social norms at the time. Mm. And that gives you a real sense of perspective when you're early on uh, in life, figuring these things out. But it has really created me this sense of empathy. And I, you know, in the sense that always, always bring people together and, and think about how other people see things rather than just how you see things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. I wonder, Andrew, just going back to, to the university time, and you said that you were the first one in your family to go on to kind of higher education mm. and obviously going to Hull from the south, up to, shout out to the north, mm. being from the north. I can understand that, <laughs> that heart and soul beat of being born in Newcastle and still having my Geordie roots. But Andrew, just wondering how your parents and your family and the people you left behind when you moved to Hull, how they they experienced you going through this change and what maybe some of their thoughts were about you, you taking on the NUS presidency, for, for example. Yeah I, yeah, I think it's really weird, isn't it? When you think, you know, and I've talked to a few friends who've been from similar backgrounds and went on to university. I think it puts you on this real edge of different worlds that, yeah, I came from quite a traditional British work, white working class background which created its own traditions, its own identities, its own cultures and resilience, and then tipped myself into this world which was more about education and learning and opening opportunities. And you sit on the edge of that. Now, I think that's really interesting. It's, you know, I'm, you know, I clearly live a middle-class lifestyle now, but I come from working-class roots. And in that period of university, I think it really put you on that tipping point of how do you relate to where you've come from and fit in a world to where you're going. And I think, you know, that is the power of education, but it puts, and I've seen lots of different writers and other people talk about this. How do you keep your identity? How do you keep your identity? How does your identity change? Mm. Uh, and how does that all fit together? I think that's a really powerful thing. Um, you know, my parents are social activists, my grandparents uh, involved in their local trade unions and founding their local labor parties. So I, you know, I come from a good line. Of, of people who would tell me that you need to organize you know don't get angry get organized do something about it so I think the student bit and uh, national union students was a step in that mm. yeah and I think you know I remember getting elected to my first ever student union small teeny weeny student union position uh, and queuing up to for the payphone was a payphone back then in the hallway of my student house to phone home and say this thing had happened and being able to talk about some of those things. You know, and there was some, you know, some things when you talk about some of the politics of it, I'm not sure everyone always understands those things, but that great sense, you know, and one of the things I'm, what am I proudest of about in my time as NUS president? I took NUS back closer to the trade union movement. That may seem strange, national union students, but they too hadn't always been closely aligned. We did some amazing, brilliant work around students at work part-time jobs how people were treated back then it was you know just when the minimum wage was being discussed as an idea minimum hours things you called zero contract uh, how do you balance working uh, with studying 
uh, how do working class kids who have to work then get opportunities that middle class students who don't need to work get? And how do you balance all of those things up together? Mm. Uh, and it was a really interesting time in British politics in that late 90s. There was a sense of social purpose and change coming through. Um, that eventually became New Labour and called Britannia. But I think it was a time when people felt actually we can shape our futures and do something about the world. Uh, it's also time took me in my tenure as NUS president where uh, a Labour government came in in 1997. It said it wanted to adopt a more inclusive uh, set of attitudes towards gay rights. And then we had to campaign. It wasn't always delivered perfectly as some of people, you know, spoken at the time, but work around uh, equal age of consent, some really basic human rights for LGBT people. That was a really important time and to have an amazing privilege to be part of a, you know, a diaspora of campaigners from different perspectives, working together to influence that change, to make that change happen. Um, it makes me incredibly proud and fires me up still talking with you both about it. <laughs> you should be you should be proud of that and especially <clears throat> you, you talk so clearly about your memories of that time Kenneth barely remembers university he barely remembers what <laughs> subjects he did whereas you can talk about exactly what you were working uh, was someone drinking too much snake bite well, perhaps there was a couple of, and black. Couple, of, couple of thimbles of those <laughs> going around and then you followed your grandparents footsteps and you moved into into government working with the Labour Party the Mayor of London and being elected councillor I mean how do you follow the formative years of university what do you remember about about that experience yeah, I mean, to me, I, I've always tried to stay grounded. The things I enjoy most about social change and influence is community organising, I think, and keeping a proximity, uh, whether it's now in my current role, uh, you know, not just talking about the future of work, but actually grounded in talking to members, working with employers, working with our what we call our branches, our active volunteers to shape their experience of work now. Uh, as a councillor working in in and around the Labour Party when it was in government, was around that connection between community and worker power or agency or ability to shape your own lives and being able to make change. You know, the thing that interests me is not what governments can do to people, but trying to open up a political space where people have the ability to exercise choices themselves uh, and create their own solutions. Uh, very much a very mutual cooperative model of, of society that uh, I think we end up being reliant if it is the government does the things for us when actually um, being a citizen, uh, being a colleague with someone at work means we should be creating some kind of social partnership. We are in this together. Mm. Uh, and if we make politics a transactional part of our lives, we vote and someone else does it for us. We pay our subs to a mutual aid organisation, a union, and someone else does it for us. I think we ultimately weaken uh, some of the, that resilience we have as you know, active citizens. Mm. And you, I mean, you, you spoke about it there, organising communities, uh, and, and communicating generally has obviously been a common theme throughout your, your career and obviously a big part of your role today. I'm just wondering what, what makes it a good communicator to you, Andrew, particularly in the, in the realms that you're, you're talking about there? Yeah, I, that's a really good question, isn't it? I think it's much easier to see what a bad communication is or yeah. bad communicator. You can always, you know, get emails in your inbox. You can say, that's terrible. Look how <laughs> someone has written me several It was nice of you to reply, email. though. 
It was nice I know, it was quite buttons. good. I did just hit, yeah. you know, accidentally trying to delete and hit the reply button. <laughs> or you see some of our current crop of politicians you know, in the US or here, and you can say, well, actually, that wasn't very good. Um, I, I suppose what I've got to, I've really been thinking about this in recent years, what, what really gets down to it. Um, and I think it's a really old tradition. I think, I think we need to be storytellers. And I actually think sometimes charities, NGOs, campaign groups, we try and talk in facts and evidence, and we don't tell stories that people can relate to. We don't create oral histories of change of our communities or bigger places. I think you see that most clearly in, you know, what I think history will look back as the biggest, saddest thing I can think in my, what would be my adult life, which was the... 2016, 2016 was Brexit referendum, where you had you know one campaign which played very much on fears, but told a story of something different. Uh, and then looking back on it, you know, forgive me for being blunt about it, quite a pompous campaign that said we can tell people facts and they will believe the facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was a fundamental misstep in terms of trying to create connection people that you know facts are really important evidence is really important but people relate to things which tell them stories about either about their lives or where they can see their hopes and fears or ambitions within those stories about why something i care about should matter to them how even though i might come from a different walk of life i might be asking them to come with me on something which feels outside of their experience, unless I give them a connection to that experience so they can see something that might relate into something I'm talking about. And I think we end up, you know, society ends up talking across purposes. And -hmm. I think some of this polarization we see nowadays, which I think is again, one of the great sad things, how, how people talk at each other, how we try and reduce everything to, you know, a shouting uh, match on social media isn't really based on bringing people together. It isn't really based on a, a sense of, do you know what, part of our stories may overlap. And in that overlap, perhaps we can start to talk in ways that might help us understand the experiences or perceptions people have in other areas. And you know, unless we can relearn some of those old oral traditions, I think progressive-minded people, those who want to bring about social change, are going to find it much harder in the years ahead. Mm. I can't remember what question you asked me. I just feel I shot off. No, no, no. You down you... this storytelling thing. Was that the question you asked me? <laughs> that was that was exactly the question. I was about being a good <laughs> communicator, but you know, as, as you're talking there, you can only kind of apply it to your your own experiences. And you know, as you said, you know, we're, we're so polarized these days. Social media has made it that way. Everybody is shouting, and, and there's not a lot of listening going on. But I know from my own experience, and I'm sure it's the same for you. If mm. I if I have a a friend or a peer or, or someone that has an opposing opinion to me, I'd rather sit down and talk about it and understand their viewpoint and then give them my viewpoint and then find that middle ground. And, and unfortunately, that's what social media and the way that a lot of people communicate nowadays doesn't happen, doesn't allow us that space to have that that discussion. And it feels like that's what you were alluding to. Is that right? I think we're in danger of closing down some of those civic or community spaces where people feel they can talk to each other. Mm. without being struck down or attacked for things. And I think particularly those of us who who want to advance the cause of, say, qualities or others, we need to find a space which isn't about seeding principles or values, but create some way that people can 
ask about things they're unsure of, mm. maybe say things in ways that would not be how I would express them, but they don't do it from a sense of attack or you know, a bad space. Great phrase I heard a while back in in a meeting when you do those ground rules and what ground rules someone had in that, you know, we use kind eyes. Uh, and to me, that really struck me, you know, lots of social change takes many people into spaces they may never have experienced or thought of. It may challenge some of the, you know, the grid lines of expectations that have either been imparted into their lives or are part of the institutions of their lives. And it isn't a switch. People aren't just bad people or good people. Uh, believe in equality, believe in inequality, there's a much more dynamic area and that can be really uncomfortable uh, for everyone. But I think you advance things by recognising that not everyone speaks from a bad place and not everyone is bad, but they may have a different starting point in their life journey or, or, or knowledge base or uh, empathy to what I have. So how, how do we have those difficult conversations? And what really, really worries me in all of that um, and there's some bits in the news these last few days that worried me and it definitely plays out in America is I do think there is particularly a right-wing driven agenda which seeks to break down trust. Um, you've seen it in some of the Trumpian kind of things where they just repeat lies and create lies and then you, know, you kind of think, well, these people are charlatans, but actually it damages the whole the public realm itself politics gets damaged and for someone like me who believes that the state can be a good enabler in our lives government can do good things when trust goes down people don't just not trust a politician they end up not trusting the state or government to be able to do good things you can really see that in huge parts of america where people you know the, the figures it's like you, you know, we went up to the top of a, a roller coaster. America stared down, the brakes went off, and it shot down in terms of public trust. So, when people lack trust in each other, ultimately they end up lack, or lack trust in politicians. It leads to a lack of trust in the very institutions that can deliver common or social goods or create common or social norms to do things, such as educate the next generation or provide commonality of welfare services or provisions or can welcome uh, asylum seekers or immigrants into our communities and support them. And I think this is a really dangerous position. I think the UK could go down a very American route. You know, I was struck and really, really angry, not just by the general stuff in politics at the moment, but by this particular thing that the Prime Minister said yesterday, where he sought to, just as a political attack, go on about a sex offender, a really awful high-profile sex offender, and claim that Keir Starmer was somehow responsible for this person evading justice uh, with no factual basis at all. And then other ministers on the radio today and others was kind of saying, and, and it's, it's exactly out of that kind of Trumpian playbook of, well, we're just going to say we don't know the facts. We're going to put it out there. And all it does is debase uh, political life. Mm. Uh, and I think that's really worrying for, mm. for someone like me who believes people come together both not just as families and friends but as societies and institutions the undermining of the very fabric that underpins the common good only ends up in one place and that's somewhere 
that the kind of small state far right would like to see about our society. It's Kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week, so I'm going to let you know that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod. Or if you're a professional business person, you can find us on LinkedIn too. There's a website, domoregood.uk, packed full with episodes, blog posts, details of the team and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content. Coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. We wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of your more more recent work. And as we've mentioned, we heard you feature on the, the Ed Miliband podcast. I forget the name. What's it called again? Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. That's Other podcasts are available. Hopefully he'll give us a shout out next week as well. The return to work, you know, the, the rights for people to, to disconnect uh, and how, you know, people have faced the challenges over the last the last year in terms of that line between home and working and, and the challenges that people face with that. And um, I was actually just reading a study before we came in from charity comms and charity people. They put out a study this morning, I think, which talks about the, the, the charity sector as a whole. And we know that the challenges within the charity and the not-for-profit area that people tend to work longer because they've got that purpose behind them and they're really mm-hmm. driven by the cause. But it said that 85.5% of people who responded to their survey had worked over their contracted hours quite regularly. And it was quite fascinating. So I just wanted to kind of explore with you, Andrew, about the work that you're doing or, or what prospect they're looking at in terms of how work life has changed following the events of the last 20 months and and whether you could tell us a bit more about what you're working on yeah i i think that study you say it was charity comms uh, mm. study i think that's not unusual is it i think no. many of us for lots of different reasons during these last couple of years just f- feel a bit frazzled you know there was a lot of pressure not all work related you know the pressure of a global health pandemic the pressure of not knowing about loved ones the anxiety about just not knowing what's around the corner works played a part of that though you know whilst digital technology has kept most of us safe, connected, able to work. It has crept out in other ways. And it's how do you have that conversation? So we were already as a union talking about some of these issues around digital balance, uh, burnout, the blurred line between home and life, you know, before 2020, before we'd even heard uh, of COVID-19, there was a sense that these, you know, these great little devices we keep in our pockets, our phones, our laptops, meant that both in actual time, working days were creeping a bit longer, but also in terms of our mental health, the ability to just switch off, the way there's almost like an addiction to technology and how we respond to each other. So, you know, looking back to 2019, we were getting stuff from our members across loads of different type job types that, you know, emails were pinging in on a Friday night, you know, you weren't working a weekend or you had a day off and still it was like, oh, just checking in, have you managed to do this report? Uh, but there's also power lines in it. So work, you know, work is a contractual relationship. My most, it's a power thing. So you know, if I'm not working on a Friday night and an email comes in and say, I'm feeding the kids and I don't respond because you know what? I'm not working. But then suddenly James and Kenneth respond. That creates a power line because then our manager might think, well, Andrew, he doesn't bother responding when I need stuff done. Mm. So there's all sorts of, tease things we need to tease out of this relationship i think that's just been writ large in the last two years 
And if you cast your mind back to the early bits of the pandemic, when we were all in it together, clapping for key workers, I think it really inverted lots of the things that we kind of allowed to grow up as perceptions about what life and working life is about. So we suddenly realized that some of the most important jobs in the world are people who work in the co-op and Morrisons or people who drive vans and drop parcels at our post or people who care for our loved ones in care homes, all of which tend to be lower wage jobs, lower prestige type jobs, suddenly became top of the food chain, quite literally, in terms of things that keep us together. And I think in that moment, there was a space where I think the British public acknowledge some of the the cultures of work we'd allow to build up probably weren't the priorities if we step back from it and looked again about how do we do things and I really hope coming out of this we do sort and fix proper rates of pay and respect and prestige not just pay it's about respect and prestige for things like care workers that we don't just drift back we really recognize that people who do jobs in warehouses and others are essential jobs yeah, and, and should have respect and be part of the good life we all want for each other. But there was all these slogans then, build back better, the new normal. And that's the bit I want, I'm trying to focus on. And we as a union are trying to organise around that we don't just drift out from pandemic to endemic and go back to the old ways of working. And you know, if you look at the last two years, that's not how you design the future. You know, so we've always said as a union, I've always believed flexible working flexible working is different to working from home. It's much more complex. It might be people who just want to do the school run a bit in the morning and come in a bit later rather than work from home. It might be people who don't want to work in the school holidays but do want to work in school term times. You know, it might be a whole range of things that we as a union and, and something I've certainly been support of is different to just where you are. And the debate we had, the thing that saddens me in the debate, is too much of it is a debate about location, where we're sat when we work, rather than how we work. And I think if we can sort the, the how question, it becomes a lot easier then to work out what do we mean by flexible working? And you sort you know, and again, let's talk about power in that. When some of these big companies said death of the office, you won't have to come in did they really mean death of the office or did they mean for people like them in important executive roles could choose where to work? Because they probably didn't mean IT didn't have to work in the office. They probably didn't mean that, you know, people on reception won't have to work. What they meant is people who look and talk like them within the power structure work should have choice. And that's where it gets into much more geekier subjects about labor market inequalities and social justice in the workspace. So it is much more than location. And I think if we can focus on, you know, what I'd kind of probably say is it's about job design. It's about the culture of work and management. It's about workloads. And from my time in charities and still knowing good network of friends across charities, all of those things can definitely play out, particularly when you love the cause. Mm. or you you have a real affinity for it. But this sense of well-being and burnout is hugely damaging, hugely damaging for people. And 
the question really is whether we can grab hold of that spirit that brought us together early on in the pandemic that said, let's rewrite the rules and we can still extend that. And it feels like we could be at a tipping point now where some of that goodwill is is being tipped away. And we might just end up in, will people be in an office or not in an office? And I think that's fundamentally the wrong debate. If we want to make work good, fulfilling and rewarding for people, we need a much bigger conversation. And now feels like a crucial time for that perhaps we've changed like you say we've changed the way that we've worked over the last couple of years but that's been that was always perhaps going to come to an end when things went back to to normal health-wise let's say whereas now we're setting behaviors that perhaps we will follow for the next decade the next five years at least and those setups and you know the contracts that we agree with our work will will have you know longer reaching consequences than the past couple of years that have set us up for this I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. And yeah, I think we shouldn't be scared of saying this is a really complex issue. It isn't easy. Mm. Uh, If we want all of us to have freedoms to work different hours and different working patterns. So, you know, work fits us rather than too much. We fit work. Then that is going to be difficult. What does that mean? If what's the phrase asynchronous work, you know, if it's no longer, we're all in nine to five in a traditional sense, but you know, I might work mornings because I get up early. You know, you might work a bit of the day and a bit later. That creates a whole, it's like a crazy paving kind of world of work. And within that, we've got to create ways for us to in- engage and find people, find ways not just to collaborate is the phrase, but how do we do emails? How do we communicate to each other? You know, how do we, how do we have conversations in different places? I think that's a brilliant set of opportunities because it means we can live up to expectations of it. Um, I would like to refer it to, do you remember the old Mars bar uh, slogan, work, rest and play? Yes. We have so many debates where it's like, are you working? I can't work. And actually, I don't want people, I don't want this to be a conversation just about work and not work. Actually, people need bandwidth to do the things they love and enjoy mm. you know, and work should enable to. And some of us love our work. I really love my work because I feel real affinity to it. But I also love other things in my life. So mm. how do we use work to enable people to do the play, mm. not just to survive? And to me, that, that, that's, that's an incredible thing. We've never had this moment in our society since I've been alive, or can remember at least, let's claim that more realistically, where we could rethink the rules and uh, i think that needs to be a conversation which is about we collectively rather than just boardrooms or editorial boards in big newspapers telling us what they think work should be like yeah you might have seen me giggling now i was just thinking (laughs) back as you were talking because um two of my very good friends who, who live close to me both both manual workers one works on the roads one works in people's homes doing um you know plumbing electrical and and repair work and of course throughout the pandemic they were all they were always at work and we were we were going for walks or whatever and they they couldn't understand me complaining about you're at home all the time and nothing's changed for us and 
And of course, it, you know, it is very different for a large amount of society that don't that weren't impacted in the way that we were because they had to go about their daily jobs. As you talk about, Andrew, the you know, the delivery drivers, the the people that were working in the supermarkets, they had to carry on. There was no option for them to kind of continue their work from home. So it's it's always leads to an interesting debate, especially after three or four pints uh, between <laughs> kind of, you know, how, how your work environment and how it affects uh, your home life. But just coming back to my question, Andrew, I guess, you know, thinking back to the podcast actually you're talking about kind of that right to disconnect uh being brought into kind of employment legislation in other countries i know i think in the, the podcast i referred to there was a a, a french uh, woman who spoke about what has been going on in france and, and what they've applied in terms of their work legislation and i just wondered how far in your experience is the uk away when it comes to the advancement in this area compared to maybe other parts of the world you're absolutely right. There's, you know, there's there's a growing movement that's come off off the back of these last couple of years. Belgium just introduced a new law, right to disconnect for public servants. Uh, this very week, it's come in. They're looking to extend it in the private sector. You've had Ireland with the code of practice. The European Union as a whole is looking at it. So there's a whole range of countries beginning to realise that if we want to make this successful then we need to understand how do we create guardrails in those boundaries. between, And it's not, and it's some, some opponents of things like right to disconnect say it's about, you know, not answering email after five o'clock. It's not about that. Every job will be different. It's about not routinely doing work when you're not, because that's called unpaid overtime. Hmm. If we are consistently, you know, building more and more work, beyond our regular hours we either shouldn't be doing it because that's bad or we should at least be paid for that and this idea that we are banking there's a really horrible phrase i keep seeing where there was a survey i think you got picked up on somewhere it said because people aren't doing the commute and they're saving time on the commute perhaps they should do perhaps they should gain some of that time themselves but give some of it to their employers i'm like why I was never paid to get to my office. My working day is from my office. I don't yeah. say it takes me two hours. Therefore, I'm going to leave two hours early to get home again. Our commute time was one of the products of our society where we get to our offices. Very few of us are actually paid to commute. It's this idea, uh, I was on a debate a while back where some US employer was talking about the free work that he's amazed at how much free work uh, his employers gift to the company. It's like, not really gift. It's like, not like workers are going here have some more of my labor for nothing that's about power that's about a screwed up way of having a work culture and calling it a gift says bad things so that deviates from right to discount so lots of good companies are already thinking about this we are part of what we call a collective agreement which is traditionally where unions and employers have an agreement to, to work together some big companies like telefonica have right to disconnect agreements which cover their workforces in all parts of europe uh, including the uk still which we're part of uh, in the telecoms industry where people did lots of teleworking it's quite grained the scottish government uh, well done to the scottish government announced in its budget just before christmas after some advocacy work from us that they wish to negotiate with ourselves and other sibling unions in Scotland about introducing this as part of their Fair Work Convention, starting again with public servants, but extending it further. Uh, and we're working with all sorts of employers to look at this. To get this at scale, my preference would be government shows some leadership uh, and either legislates for it or puts in place a mechanism where employers have to have this discussion with their workforce. Uh, 
but there are good employers. My worry is that we have a very British tradition of let's keep it voluntary. And that means the kind of employees you would imagine would adopt really good things, adopt really good things. But most of us don't work in those workspaces. So how do we how do we how do we create this kind of change at scale? Mm. But yeah, my in my experience, lots of employers that we negotiate with are really alert to some of those things around well-being and mental health, burnout, digital pressures, the greatness, portable technology. We can take it anywhere, but it also means work can follow us anywhere. Mm. I think that's that's the real pressure point. And to me, it's how do we how do we learn some things that you know, we we learn different ways to talk about work in the old world when we were all physically in one space together. How do we talk about them in perhaps a more digital version of it? So I think the let's give a plug again. The example I gave to Ed Miliband at the end of the podcast, uh, I think, you know, paints this really easily or clearly in my mind, which is again Friday night cooking dinner for uh, kids or, or doing something with family. If you know, if my employer bangs on the door, comes in, sits at the dinner table, pushes the food aside and starts talking to me about work, we'd clearly say that's an abusive relationship and shouldn't happen. So what's the digital equivalent of that? Because we know lots of people do get emails from their employer, from their line manager late at night. Oh, can you just do this for me? Oh, I need it ready for tomorrow morning. And that creates a pressure point. And when it's in a power relationship of someone who can decide whether you are rewarded or not for that piece of work, that can be really dangerous unless it is, unless again, we put guardrails around it that enable people to be able to articulate problems or respect each other or resolve some of these issues. And we've gone from, you know, naught to 60 in a matter of seconds during the pandemic in our use of different forms of working. And we've just overshot some of the agreed ground rules of how this new world works. So we just need to pedal a bit faster to keep up with the, uh, that's too many mixed metaphors, isn't it? <laughs> it's gone north 60, we need to catch up, is the point I'm making. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's the legislative slide and, and the kind of businesses taking a step, but it's also behavioural as well, right? We've, when we're talking to our mates as well, we've got to celebrate Take, you know, not working all the time not kind of hustling all the time to do stuff to to have conversations where actually it took a day off and i really enjoyed it It was great lovely like that's that's brilliant we should be talking about that more mm-hmm. oh, absolutely isn't that a wonderful thing and i think many of us have reevaluated a bit maybe not gone as far as getting a puppy and all those things which some people have but these last two years have shown us some things, haven't we? Is that two puppies too? So two puppies. Yeah, two puppies. Oh, God. One each. Oh, yeah. Well, Kelly's got one, so I had to keep up with him, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's right, isn't it? You know, we've, we've evaluated things about loved ones, families, things we yeah. either miss, we want to catch up on, or things that have really grounded us during a really difficult period. Mm. And that, that's come up against a kind of culture which you know, made us, you know, you know, for lots of things in charity world, in bits of the world, you want to work more. You demonstrate your identity by saying, I'm willing to work harder. And often for many people, that's I'm in the office last or I'm in the office earlier or I'm going to the pub with my workmates, which isn't a bad thing. But if you feel you have to do it, 
you know, it excludes many people who don't go to pubs and other stuff. There's all those conversations about what new modern working relationships should be and always should have been. But it's that sense that there was kind of an invisible leash yeah. in yeah. Yeah. our I've, work life. I've seen Kenneth do it in a different way. He's always the last on the dance floor. <laughs> he's, he's often first as well it's been a while since we've been on a dance floor hasn't it? It has been a have while. you not done like a zoom yeah. little dance <laughs> well, maybe I've, tonight i've maybe got a bit of room tonight. in my little office here maybe we can uh, that'd be a nice way of finishing well, taking a just taking a step back andrew from the from the the right to disconnect and thinking more holistically about the you know the, the future of work um what are the, some of the interesting areas that maybe you're exploring that maybe haven't made it into the kind of the public domain at the moment, um, but you're expecting that maybe come down the line in the future that people should be considering in terms of kind of this 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 new normal of, of what work looks like? Yeah, I, I think that's a really nice way of looking at it because I, I still think there is a there's a space at the moment if we organise or talk about this in the right way where we can keep rewriting some of these rules. Yeah. And I think, think back to what I just said about work, rest and play. I, you know, I think we need to keep having the conversation with colleagues and friends at work, with employers in society as a whole about what role do we want work to have in our lives? I think that, that's the fundamental essay question. Um, and how do, we, how do we then make it better for people? Mm. Uh, and I think if we can if we can start to solve that, that opens up so many really good possibilities to not just fix it for those who've always had power and privilege in workspaces, for, but for many more of us. Um, I think there's also a really interesting question about collective experiences. And I don't have instant answers for this one, which is it's not just about who goes into into big cities and who doesn't. But one of the communal experiences was going to work, whether you were blue collar or white collar. And now for many more people, we're going to end up predominantly in white collar roles where their relationship to work will be based around their home in large part. Mm. And, I, and I think we should argue for that. But I think really interesting ta- challenges, it begins to remove or erode some of the common spaces. So it didn't matter whether you did a posh job or you did a job like me or any job, you all got on the same bus or you're all stuck in the same bit of traffic. And we know there are real social ills around traffic jams and cars and buses. But I also reflect on communal experiences. So to me, how do we rebuild a shared set of experiences about work should be better for everyone? Yeah, and I think some great things we can do in reinventing our communities. If if more people are going to spend more of their working life in proximity to their homes, then we can regenerate and rebuild and reset communities in different ways that don't have to be just in big urban areas. But I think there is something around empathy for people who do other things, which are not your normal common experience. So how how do you how will you meet people who come from different backgrounds and traditions? If within your power and privilege you're doing things as a as a danger digital can further remove us into bubbles rather than trying to create this great melting pot of experiences where we can meet each other so look, definitely i'm not saying we shouldn't make it i think we should make loads of changes we should definitely reset power relationships in, in the world of work but i'm also mindful there are some difficult conversations about shared experiences commonality empathy how do we deal with some of those things I think there's a set of issues around 
uh, inequality, which mm. will come up, which are often similar to inequality in the office or the workspace or the you know or the factory, which could become different forms of that same inequality digitally. So lots of lots of big newspapers talk about the death of the office and death of presenteeism. I think there is digital presenteeism, which is partly right to disconnect people feeling they have to be on it. Uh, there is the, the huge issue around the rise of digital surveillance. One in five British companies now say they either use digital monitoring tools or plan to do so off the back of the pandemic. Bringing camera monitoring into our laptops, into our kitchens and spare rooms is a huge paradigm shift of privacy invasion compared to what we've had beforehand. You know, at least if you were being watched in or surveilled in the office and you had a lousy day, you could leave. Mm. If these, you know, employers are now using increasingly as they are software to take camera shots of you in your house, what kind of power and privilege does that put into the into thing where people think, well, actually, look, your house doesn't look very nice. What judgments do I make about you? You know, what are you doing? Who else is in your house? There's there's just a different nature of traditional work debates happen if we bring that into our own workspaces. Uh, you know, and you know, I say that as someone who you know has a dedicated space at home I can work from, but I can see it, particularly for younger workers and others who may not, you know, have great housing conditions or people who may not live in in homes where it is easy to work. And what is that? You know, what kind of other inequalities about it? Yeah, and, and if primary carers who still are largely women make more use of working from home and the boy is still going to the office, what do we think is going to happen in the balance of who gets promoted and who doesn't get promoted? So I think some really strong conversations need to be had about how we manage not just, again, change of location, but a change of opportunity within some of those things. Really interesting and, and debate and discussion that hopefully continues long on for the next few years and we come up with some sensible conclusions. But Andrew, we'll begin to, to to wrap it up there just to say, look, thank you so much for your time. I think that was really interesting to get your perspective on on a topic that, you know, is pretty relevant to a, a large amount of us. You know, we're all worrying and <laughs> considering what the future looks like. I think I feel just reflecting on my own situation. I feel very privileged to to work for an organisation that has has approached this in the right way for me and 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 talked to me and had a long discussion about how do we work and we're, we're asking ourselves those questions pretty much daily at the moment about how do we formulate a, a way of working. Sometimes it, it just reminds me a few a few months back before the pandemic, actually a few months back, a few years back now before the <laughs> pandemic. One of the senior figures in our business saying, why aren't we talking about a four-day working week, which I know is something that has been uh, discussed in, in certain parts and implemented. And, you know, I think it's it will be certainly good to, to keep an eye on it. It's, it's being trialled, isn't it, at the moment? So four days a week in some companies. At the moment. Some companies, yeah. Trial. I think mm. I, yeah, I come across a few people that have, have been trialling yeah, it. Yeah, there's and... a trial that's just kicked off, actually. Yeah. Really interesting, trying to get different companies in it. And I see it's like time. How do we have a conversation about time? It's not just mm. length of time you're working, but the quality of time. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, look, Andrew, we're not going to let you go be f- straight away. We've got three quick fire questions that we drop into the end of all of our podcasts. And obviously you've been an avid listener of the show for the last 98 episodes. So you'll know exactly what these, <laughs> what these questions are going to be. James, right, think, do you want to go for the first my connection one? might be going. No. <laughs> Mute. Uh, talking of time, 
if you could transport back in time and meet your 20 year old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? Well, don't take yourself so seriously. I could probably give that. I could go back 20 minutes before this, this interview <laughs> and give that a sack. Thing. So, yeah, I think you've got to remember to kick back every now and then. Yeah. It's going to take a while to get A couple that. of snake bites down at the student union. Bit of perno. Don't drink oh. so much perno. That's what I'd say. Oh. Don't drink so much perno. That's <laughs> definitely good advice. We should time capsule that. And anyone listening, don't drink too much perno. <laughs> I'll take that one. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us about one life hack or a productivity tool or a habit or a skill or something that you've taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about? Oh, how do, how do you apply that? So like, the big thing I really got into during lockdown is gardening. I have a little garden. I go out. I deadhead in the summer. Uh, that's my thing. It is the most peaceful, wonderful thing to ever do is nice. grow a few bulbs, grow a few things. My snowdrops just come up. My Christmas clematis, a bit late, but it's just open today. <laughs> uh, living, I live in the middle of a city, gardening, take it up. It is, you get in tune with the seasons in a way I never thought would excite me, but it does. Nice. And it's difficult. You can't reply to emails with the gloves on. See? So it forces you to... I'm like to Edward Scissorhands, I can just chop my <laughs> phone up. Yeah. Uh, final question for you then. As a podcast that is focused around people doing more good, what's your favourite story or inspiring individual you have met on your journey who has done something good for others? Oh, that's, uh, that's hard. Can I, pick, can I pick my inspiration for when I did my early training? Pick yeah, whatever you always can. my lodestar. Yeah. Uh, uh, is when I did my, when I was young and started out, I did my organizing training. My absolute hero is a guy called Bayard Rustin, who we should know more of, who was an organizer in the US civil rights movement. So everyone thinks Martin Luther King, and they think of the, what they call the March on Washington. Uh, and people, it was called the March on Washington for Freedoms. Everyone thinks about civil rights, but it was the March on Washington for, for jobs and freedom. Uh, and it was about economic and social rights together. I love Bayard Rustin because in the 1960s, he was, in the 50s before that, he was a trade union organiser. He was a young black activist. He was openly gay and he was openly left wing in the US, all which any one of those probably should have killed your career off. He kept going. He gave the organising power to Martin Luther King. We don't know enough about him nowadays because of all those attributes that meant he is hidden away from history. Uh, and he, he just came up with some really brilliant things now that when people think of Stacey Abrams, when people think of some of the, the great community organisers, actually the likes of Bayard Rustin and some of the early black civil rights movement, they were there from the dot, organising their communities to feel power. And I, I, I feel really lucky to have learned from some of his teachings and other things. But actually to, to feel that the work I do now is built on some amazing activists who are a lot braver than me, who set a pathway uh, to do some of those things. Uh, so he has a great phrase I, I always like to end lots of talks, which is, you know, let us be in, let us be enraged by injustice, but let us not be destroyed by it. Uh, and to me, that's a great lodestar. Wow. That wow. sounds like the perfect way to, to sum it up. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Um, if anyone wants to maybe get in touch or connect with you or like what you've spoken about today, where can they find you on? 
They can find me down the dog and duck. Is that what you mean? No, they can find (laughs) me um, at Andrew for the Digit MK or find me on uh, LinkedIn. I'm always happy to build this little network of people. Do more good. What a great title. It feels like I've been on your therapy couch (laughs) the last few minutes, but uh, do more good. Let's do more good. Love it. Love it. Right. James, any final thoughts? Uh, No, it's been great. I've loved the past hour. I'm going (laughs) to turn off the laptop. I'm going to throw the phone to the end of the garden. I'm going to go and get myself a £900 kebab. And the the perno. We'll leave it there, James. Thank you so much. See you soon. Cheers, guys. Take care. Thanks. Just before we go, can we ask a favour? If you've enjoyed this episode and you've made it this far after all, and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good. 